we're going to kind of uh, enter into a tale of two friends. And throughout this series, as we've been focusing on unity, um, we've addressed both the, the positive side of unity and the dark, dark reality of disunity in the body of Christ. And I've tried my very best to lay out on the line every week what's at stake here. That This is not an option. It's not that we can maybe if we feel like it be unified, but the unity that the Holy Spirit is fostering right now is, is, is just, it seems to be exponentially um, compounding upon itself. It's just growing and growing and growing. We've shared tales uh, here, or not tales, but we've accounts recently of, of uh, Christians crossing denominational lines, pastors getting I can say it this way, wrecked by the Holy Spirit, and they're part of denominations where the Holy Spirit really isn't invited to do too much. And so we're just excited about what the Lord's doing. But ultimately, uh, the thing that's going to continue to advance the kingdom and advance the work of the Lord right now in this season, in this generation, in this region, it's going to come through intentional unity between believers. And what I want to do is I want to take a look at Paul and Barnabas and we're going to kind of go through their history together. And you're going to find out that it is um, easy even for spirit-filled apostles like Barnabas and like Paul to lose their grip on unity. And if Paul and Barnabas had opportunity to uh, have friction in their relationships, all the more you and I can be instructed on how to guard for that against that in our lives. And so look with me in Acts 15. I'm going to read verses 36 through 41. We're going to go through several different passages tonight. So after this initial reading, keep your eye on the screen and you'll be able to find the verses there. Acts 15, verse number 36. Luke's writing and he says, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So that Paul and Barnabas, they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I noticed when I was reading, nobody just stood up and started shouting and praising God and running the aisles and, and just being you know, filled and demonstrably manifesting because it's not that kind of passage. It's not one of those passages that you say, yeah, because... It looks on the surface like there's not a whole lot going on there, but it's actually a crucial passage of Scripture that I knew I was going to share when I started this series, I think, eight weeks ago. I knew I wanted to share this because these are two godly men who had a great relationship, but it came down to a day in their relationship that they did not protect their hearts, and they both ended up going different ways. Now, I'm going to give you the good news right at the beginning. God is so gloriously good that he can take our mistakes and bring something awesome out of it. Because what happened is from that splitting off, two, two new missionary teams developed, and the work of the Lord continued. However, we're going to trace this all the way down to the last days of the Apostle Paul's life, and I think I can make a pretty good biblical case that Paul ended up regretting what we're going to see happened in this passage. So, Let's walk backwards a little bit. I want to go a little bit, of several years before the passage that I just read, and I 
want to start with what began as a very powerful friendship. In order to do that, I'm going to be reading out of Acts chapter number 9 and verses 23 through 28. Where did these two men meet? How did they become buddies? How did they become more than friends? How did they become ministry partners and co-laborers together? Well, first of all, let's start with Paul's life. This is back when his name was still Saul. And Saul was a former persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He wanted to kill as many as he could. If he couldn't kill them, he wanted to imprison them. And he had gotten radically converted when he met Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, on the road to Damascus. And when that encounter happened, Saul was radically changed and immediately he became a pursuer of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. And so after that conversion, you've got to understand because he had formally killed and imprisoned Christians, authorizing their deaths, there were a lot of Christians that knew him as the bad guy who were very reluctant to welcome him as the new guy, but that's where Barnabas is going to come into the picture. So let's start here. First of all, Paul was being hunted at this season in his life by unbelievers. In verses 23 and 25 uh, through in Acts 9, the The Bible says this, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul or Paul. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates and uh, night and day in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Okay, real quick here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Saul was so committed to Jesus that everywhere he went, he was proclaiming Jesus Christ is the Lord. There is no other. In the, in the day of the, the Greek language or Roman language, the common saying was, was this. They would have said, Christos, or excuse me, Kaiser Kurios, Kaiser Kurios, which simply means the Caesar is Lord, the Caesar is sovereign. And yet the proclamation of Saul and the other Christians was Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord, Christ is Lord. And that got Paul in a lot of trouble. And because of that, wherever he went, he was making enemies. He'd make enemies with the Jews. He would make enemies with the Gentiles. In this case, he had infuriated the Jews that he used to partner with. And they had heard that this one that used to be one of their, their, their shining stars in Judaism was now a Christian prophet slash apostle preaching Jesus. And so naturally, they wanted to kill him. Now, friends, just very quickly, you and I don't really have a taste of that yet in America. That's not really our reality, but let's not understate what's being said. Paul had a bounty on his head. The religious people wanted to kill him. They looked for him day, night. They wanted to always find an opportunity to the extent that Paul knew he had to escape where he was. And so he had to be let down over the city wall at night through a basket, and then he runs off in the night to escape. Now, that's a bad day if you ask me. It's a bad day when all of these unbelievers are coming against you and they're they're seriously wanting to mute you by killing you. And Saul knew that they would do that in a heartbeat because he used to be one of them that sought to do that to Christians. So he runs out of that city. My, My thought would be, well, thank God he's got the body of Christ to embrace him. But watch what happens next. You see, he wasn't only being hunted by the unbelievers, he was being rejected by the actual believers. Look at what happened. What happens in verse 26. So Saul ends up going down to Jerusalem. Now look at what the Bible says. He attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So this is where Saul's reputation had caught up with him again. So he's fleeing unbelievers, and he thinks, well, let me run down to Jerusalem. That's where some Christians are. I've got contacts in the city. Let me go down there. But he gets down there, and the church doesn't want to have anything to do with him because all they can remember is, isn't this the guy who used to be the headhunter of all believers, 
Think about it. He goes back into Jerusalem and now as a born-again, converted, radically changed believer, he's encountering wives that he made widows by executing their husbands. Children who were small that are now teenagers that he made orphans because he dragged their dad or mom or both off to prison where they died incarcerated because they had become Christians. And now he's also among adults who remembered this was the man that was ravaging the church. This was the man that went out with all of the the, uh, arrest warrants and dragged people off and wreaked havoc against the believers. And now he's coming and he says he's one of us. Now, natural skepticism would say, um, maybe he got saved, maybe he didn't get saved, but I don't want him in my house. And wherever Saul went, though he was saved, though he was forgiven, though Jesus had made him a new creation, he could not find a person that would welcome him in. The entire body of believers there in Jerusalem were saying, we don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, that bad day just got worse. It's one thing to have unbelievers that want to kill you. It's another thing that the only place you could possibly find refuge would be with other Christians, and they don't want to have anything to do with you because they can't forget who you used to be. Now, I'm sure none of y'all have ever gone through that because, I mean, surely Christians don't do that anymore. Surely we don't ever hold anybody's past against them. But in Saul's case, that's exactly what was happening. And so here he was. He's a man without a country. He's a man without a place to go. But hallelujah, here comes Brother Barney. This is where, out of the blue, this one named Barnabas appears on the scene. And this is where the friendship begins. In verses 27 and 28 of chapter 9, this is what you read. Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road, the road to Damascus, he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus, Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I, I'm just going to strip away all of the ecclesiology here, all of the, all of the deep stuff. I'm just going to say it as plainly as it can be said. Paul needed a friend and Barnabas was that friend. Paul needed somebody with skin on, flesh and blood, somebody that could put a moment of confidence in him, that could vouch for him, that could speak on his behalf, that could literally get him an entrance into uh, an audience with the powers that be so he could uh, give them his testimony. And what was interesting is it doesn't even seem like the apostles wanted to hear from Saul. They only listened to Barnabas. The Bible says that Barnabas was the one who said, listen, I've seen this man. I've heard him preach. He's not playing around. The one that used to persecute us is now proclaiming our king and our Lord and our savior. Saul of Tarsus is now Saul the Christian. We should receive him. Friends, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I, I know I have. I mean, there, I, I can think of times in recent years where it just seemed like anywhere I turned, there was bad news, there was trouble coming, there was a difficulty or a person that didn't have my best interest at heart. And there's such a loneliness that can find you in times like that where you feel like literally you don't have a friend of the world. Now, maybe it's not objectively true, but we've probably all felt that isolation before. What, what was sad for, for Saul at this time is he wasn't just feeling it, it was actual. That's exactly what he was going through. And look what the Lord does. The Lord gives him a friend who went to bat for him big time. I mean, Barnabas was willing to make a risky move on Paul's behalf. He went in there and stuck his neck out on the line for this one who had formerly persecuted the church. Now, before we move away from this, let me just say, 
in, in your distress, if you think about your life, some of the deepest, most meaningful friendships you've had have come when somebody got you in the sense of, this person gets me, they understand me, they're there for me. Especially if it was during a season where everything else was coming against you. If I gave you three minutes to think about it, you could travel back in your own history and you could remember people that were there for you when nobody else was. And there's just something that is fostered in the spirit. Something happens with friendships like that. And so Paul, Saul, Paul, forgive me for using the names interchangeably, it's the same guy, but they, they developed this meaningful, powerful friendship. But interestingly, from that friendship, something more significant was going to come, and that's what I want to get to in Acts chapter 11. So let's move on to the next thought. Beyond this powerful friendship, there came about a kingdom partnership. You see, God takes the most simple human moves that we make, A simple willingness to befriend Saul was about to turn into a powerful kingdom partnership by which God would do some incredible stuff through these two men as they labor together. So let's look at it. Let me give you some context about what happens next in Acts 11 and Acts 13. First of all, revival was breaking out in a different part. They were now in Jerusalem, but there was a place where in... um, in the, in the outskirts of where they were in different regions where revival was breaking out. Look at Acts eleven nineteen 19 through 21. The Bible says that now those that were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. By the way, the very man that caused that persecution of Stephen was Saul. So the persecution that he started had now scattered the church. And the Bible goes on to say that the people, the Christians, ran from that persecution, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they were speaking the word to nobody except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Those are Greek-speaking Jews. They started giving the gospel to these Greek-speaking Jews, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21 says this, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, this is significant. We don't have a lot of time to dwell here. But all of a sudden, the gospel is moving out of a strictly Jewish context. It's spreading out, although these people were still Jews, they were Greek-speaking Jews. And they weren't always smiled upon by the Jews who were thoroughly orthodox and spoke Hebrew. And so you see the gospel moving out, and the gospel, and people are believing People are starting to get saved, and the Bible says that a great number of people believed on Jesus Christ and were saved. Now, I'm just a Bible believer, and so when I read in my Bible that the Holy Spirit took time to say, make sure as you're writing this, Luke, you write down there was a bunch of people getting saved. So it wasn't a smattering of salvations like we kind of see in our days. I'm praying for a revival where we see so many salvations, we can't count them. I am praying and hungering for that. I'm believing for that. I do believe we're going to taste revival like that, but it's not here yet. We're not seeing it yet. What we see is one saved here, one saved there. Maybe occasionally two or three get saved in a, in a good service or an evangelistic outreach or something like that. But when revival hits, there are mass conversions. It gets messy. I'm praying God will entrust us with some messy revival days. And that's what was happening there in these regions. So all of these people are getting saved, and yet there was no apostolic oversight. There were no true leaders that were overseeing the revival. And so look what happens down in verses 22 through 26. Barnabas goes there, 
And the Bible says that he sought Paul as a partner in ministry. Watch this. The report of this revival comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. That's where all the, the top dogs were, the head honchos. And they sent Barnabas. They picked Barnabas to go to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, Barnabas was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were asked added unto the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to do what? To look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And watch this. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So watch this. So revival breaks out. There's no apostolic oversight. That means there's no true ordained leadership to help these people manage all these salvations. They need to be discipled, baptized, taught, and all of this. And so they needed some apostles to go up there. So the church at Jerusalem says, we're going to send Barnabas up there. Now Barnabas arrives on the scene, and he's, a, he's an exhorter. We're not seeing in Scripture that Barnabas is like a, a, a strong teacher. We don't necessarily see that gift. He's highly relational. He likes to be with people. He likes to help people. He's very generous in his giving. But he's looking out, and he is seeing all of these brand-new babies in Christ, and he says, I need a teacher. I need somebody with a gift of teaching. I need somebody who understands the theology of the church. I know who I need to get. Where's my friend Saul? And he remembers, oh, he's back in his hometown. He's in Tarsus. So he goes and gets Saul, and he says, come up here, man. You've got to help me minister to all of these Christians. People are getting saved out the wazoo. I don't know what to do. Come and help me. And so they get there in Antioch, and they're getting saved, and Paul's teaching, and, then he stay, and they end up staying there over 12 months. That, that's the life of a missionary, by the way. Life of a missionary is, in, in its most pristine form is, Lord, what are you doing today, and how would you like me to get in on it? And so Barnabas and Saul, they just start this ministry team in Antioch, and for a whole year, they're ministering side by side. They are the leaders. They are the influencers. They are the ones pouring into the church, and the Bible says that people are being strengthened. They're being grown. Let me make a statement here real quickly. Um, it, it's really healthy in a leadership of any group of believers, whether it's a local church or if it's in a region, you need to hear this. I strongly believe in the legitimacy of fivefold ministry. That means you can't have just a bunch of pastors or just a bunch of teachers or just a bunch of evangelists or just apostles or just prophets. That we, in order to be healthy in the body of Christ, when you get enough Christians in an area, the best way to do ministry is to have leadership teams that have a representation of all five of those leadership giftings. One of the things that Dustin and I are doing here, and we, we're making progress in this, is identifying people in this assembly that have different giftings. Because I know what my gifting is, but I also know what my gifting is not. And you have to come to the place where you have to say, I can't be all things to all people. Dustin and I, you won't find two different guys. We are gifted, completely polar opposites. And that's why we love working together. Because he gets to do all the stuff I hate doing and I'm not good at. And I get to do the stuff that he doesn't want to do. And it's an awesome team. But that's only two guys. You got you to, Dustin carries a, a, an apostolic mantle with a, with a teaching gift and a pastoring gift. I carry an apostolic mantle, but my primary is prophetic and teaching. And so what we're realizing in this is, man, we don't have a whole lot of shepherds around here. And I've been praying for a year for God to raise up about a dozen shepherds, men and women, that can pastor and take care of the flock and come and use their giftings. And they don't have to worry about anything else. Now, what happened with Paul and Barnabas is their two giftings come together. And whereas individually, they still would have done fine. But together, 
They make a dynamic team, and God started blessing this partnership in the kingdom. So come down a little bit further with me. We'll go down into Acts 13. So we're moving from Acts 9 to Acts 11 into Acts 13 now. Years are going by. At this point, from the time Barnabas met Saul of Tarsus, is probably close to a decade at this point, with a year of that 10 years being spent there in Antioch together. Now, watch what happens. God mightily blessed their ongoing partnership. At the end of that first year, look in verse uh, number 1 of Acts 13. It says, now there were at the church in Antioch, watch this, prophets and teachers, and some of them are named. Barnabas was one of them, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and then it just kind of adds this Saul. And so while they were worshiping, it was a high call. They're worshiping the Lord. They're fasting according to the word of God. The Holy Spirit speaks. We don't know exactly how he did it, but he communicated. He downloaded something to the leader's heart, and here's what the message was. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is huge. This is the first of three major missionary endeavors that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was called to engage. His life was spent planting churches and establishing churches and edifying leaders and and, and writing out the majority of our New Testament. But at this phase, he's still really early on. And in the midst of ministering faithfully there in Antioch, in the midst of worshiping the Lord, a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of fasting, to hear the Lord. Remember, they didn't have the Bible. And so everything they got, they got through prophetic word, through revelatory expressions or communication from the Father. And so they had to be constantly in tune with the Lord. Not that we don't need to be, but we do have an advantage. We have the written word of God. Everything they were getting was literally supernaturally down loaded to them. And in the midst of the church, fasting and praying, the leaders are listening and the Holy Spirit says something. The Holy Spirit says, I've got to work and I've got two men I've called to do it. It's pretty, pretty important here. What was about to happen was not simply two buddies saying, hey, you want to try out a new ministry. It was literally the sovereign God of heaven saying, I have blessed you in Antioch. I have developed you in Antioch. I have fused your hearts together. You're not only brothers, you're friends, but you're also co-laborers. Now, I have a work that I'm going to call you to do. You're going to go on a journey, and you're going to establish churches. You're going to win, you're going to win souls. You're going to disciple them. You're going to engage in this ministry, and it's the work that I'm doing, and I'm calling these two guys. And the church was wise enough to say, we have heard from the Lord. They laid their hands on them, they blessed them, and off they went. And the great missionary endeavors of the Apostle Paul began. Um, I just want to stress this before we move on, because this would go on for a few years. This first missionary journey was not just some good idea. you got to remember it was God's idea. God fostered this. God put those two men together. God knit their hearts together. When Saul was lost and being hunted by unbelievers and being rejected by believers, the sovereign God of heaven took a people person named Barnabas, who seems to be in Scripture just a happy-go-lucky guy that carried a mantle of influence, and, and Barnabas brought Saul into the fellowship of the church. God was behind it all the way. Why? Because God wanted to use these men for the glory of his son Jesus, which makes everything I'm about to tell you all the more painful. This is something that I've lived and I currently live with a little bit of regret in with a few brothers that were Barnabases to my Saul. 
I really want you to hear this because I believe that all of us probably have a relationship or two, maybe more, that have either been severed, there's no communication, or maybe it's just a strained relationship right now and it's being threatened with what is about to happen to these two men right before our very eyes. May the Holy Spirit give you courage and faith to really listen to this next part because we do not want to experience what these two brothers experienced. What is it? Disrupted fellowship. They had kingdom partnership. They had a powerful friendship. And now all of a sudden, we're going to see it. It happens in one day. Disrupted fellowship. First of all, it was a season for both of them of decisions. The Bible says, now they're already on their missionary journey. They've completed their first one. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go and return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. So it's a very common part of missionary work. They, these two leaders went and established churches. They got some elders or some leaders established. Then they move on to the next area. They repeat the process and so on and so on. And at the end of uh, many, many days, we don't know how many exactly, Paul says, Barnabas, let's work our way backwards. Let's go visit every church that we planted and let's see how people are doing. Let's see how those fledgling churches are growing. Let's see how those leaders are doing. Let's see if there are more disciples and more converts. Let's see if they have what they need. Let's see if they're being persecuted and they might need extra help from other brothers and sisters. And so Paul really cared about the people that he brought into the kingdom, and so did Barnabas. And so it was a season of decisions. Let me, let me just throw this in there. Not every season for you is plowing again in the same direction that you've been on for a while. God will occasionally put up some parentheses in your life. It means you've been doing this and doing this and doing this, and you've gotten used to doing it. Maybe you've even gotten good at doing it. Maybe God's blessing it. But there comes a time where God will just blow the referee's whistle, call a timeout, and say, I'm going I'm to actually put you on pause for a minute. You're not going to continue on with the next missionary journey. I'm actually, and it could have felt like this geographically, I'm actually going to take you backwards for a season because I want to grow you more deeply than I want to, uh, I want to send you deep rather than far in this season. That's, it, it takes a whole lot of faith sometimes just to welcome the season where God puts us on pause. You know, you know friends, it's, it's not always exciting, especially if you're wired like some of us. I'm just a, I hate turning around. I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, man, I, I hate stopping and I hate turning around. I will go a longer distance as long as I know there's fewer stop signs or red lights. And, and I, listen, I, if I forget my keys and I'm a block away from the house, I will usually just keep on going. I will just keep on going and I think I am not going to turn around. I'm just weird like that. And some of y'all are too. You, you hate stopping. You hate interruptions. And you struggle sometimes when God blows the whistle and he says, hey, I need to put you on timeout for a little bit because we're about to go deeper. Well, Paul and Barnabas had this opportunity to go and revisit, to go and pour into relationships. Look what happens, though. This season of decisions becomes a season of discouragement. Look at what happens in verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. Now watch this. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Here it happens. These guys have been getting along swimmingly. These men have been doing great kingdom work. They have bonded together spiritually. They bonded together relationally. They bonded together missionally. 
And so they're doing all of this together. They take a breather. It's been a long season. They're tired. They're about to go back and visit. And they agree on the mission, but they couldn't agree on how the mission should be done. You see, you've got this name, John Mark. John Mark was a cousin to Barnabas. And John Mark was a part of their original team, but somewhere along the line, right in the middle of their missionary travels, John Mark couldn't cut it, and he quit. He quit on the Apostle Paul. Now, if you know a little bit about the Apostle Paul's life, he is a type A choleric. He is a guy that does not, he is, there's not much softness in him at all. He is missionally driven. He is truth driven. He is all about do, getting the work done. He's not an overly relational person. We're not seeing, I mean, I'm sure he, he can shed some tears and show some kindness. But when you really study his life in scripture, he is all about the glory of Jesus. He's all about enduring hardness. He's always about being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he doesn't like quitters. And Barnabas's cousin quit on them around the region of Pamphylia. And Pamphylia was not an easy place to minister. All of the trekking that they were doing, it would have been nasty. It would have been just a miserable terrain, all sorts of disease and sickness and mosquitoes and all of that. And John Mark said, I want to go home. And he did. And he left them. And so now that Paul and Barnabas have finished that course without John Mark, Barnabas, the relational guy, the guy who's got a heart as big as anything, he says to Paul, hey, man, I do think we need to visit the churches. You know what? Let's give my cousin John Mark another chance. And Paul says, uh-uh, we're not going to do it. And Barnabas says, now, Paul, calm down. I understand, but listen, hey, Paul, didn't you get a second chance? Didn't you get a second? How about we give John Mark a second chance? And Paul says, no, I take this work too seriously. I can't afford to have another quitter. We lost time. We lost energy. We lost effort. That little boy needs to go home and grow up for a little bit. We're not going to take him. And so it turned personal. Because how many of you know that, you know, you can put up with some stuff. Somebody starts talking bad about your family. It brings something bad out of you. And so something out of Barnabas got really tough, and Paul got really tough. And the Bible, listen, this is one of the reasons why you know that the Bible was inspired by the Lord. Because if Luke was just writing this on his own, he would have left all this stuff out. Because by this time, by the time the book of Acts was written, John Mark, I'll give you a little nugget here, John Mark was already a credible and established disciple. He had already turned the corner. He had, he had, he had kind of righted the ship in his own life. And so by the time this is being included and it's being read, people are finding out the first time it's read, oh, Paul felt that way about John Mark? John Mark is great. But Luke included it in the scripture because the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we never idolize any leader, even the Apostle Paul. Even the Apostle Paul, this great man of God, this man of great revelations, had his weak spots, and so did Barnabas. And so the Bible says that they went from disagreeing to departing. Look at it right there. The disagreement turned into a season of departure. Verse 39, the Bible says very clearly, they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And Paul and Silas were commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And all of a sudden, and again, God took took a bad situation and did something great with it. But we don't see anywhere else in Scripture that Barnabas and Paul ever ministered side by side together again. 
These men that were friends, these men that had done life together, these men that had loved each other, these men that had shared the most powerful moments of ministry that either one of them had ever experienced up to that point, and all because of a disagreement on a certain day about who to take with them on the missionary journey. And these two hardheads went after each other to the point where everything that God started with these two stopped because they couldn't get along. See, this is the part that sobers me. This is a teaching moment for all of us. Um, I, I would love to tell you I've never had anything like this happen to me, but I have, man. I, 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 it wasn't agony, but I, I kind of just really struggled for about 15 minutes today going over this and thinking about a couple of relationships in particular that I thought, why did I let that happen? And at the time, I thought I was right, and maybe I was objectively. Maybe I had the facts on my side, but I didn't have the heart of the Lord on it. And so I stood my ground on the facts and I let a relationship with a brother implode, fizzle, and die all because I felt like I needed to stand my ground and protect my point I was trying to make. And these two men went their separate ways. I mean, even the language in these verses, it says sharp disagreement turned to separation, turned to sailing away, turning to departed. They're just moving further and further and further away from each other. Um, I don't know where you are, and of course we can't undo time, but sometimes you can redeem it. We can't undo the mistakes we made, but there are opportunities for us to humble ourselves, to revisit relationships that maybe now looking back with a little more wisdom, uh, with a little bit more um, leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives, with a little more humility, one of the greatest things that you can ask the Father to give you, and he will do it. He'll give it to you over time. One of the greatest things is, Lord, give me eyes to always see the other person's side of the story. Now, it doesn't sound overly spiritual, but I'm going to tell you, if, you're, if, 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 if kingdom relationships are significant, and they are, and all we ever see is our side of the story, then we can't help people. We can't, we can't really evolve in our relationships with people because we'll always be protecting our territory instead of stepping into theirs or letting them into ours. And friends, this is what happened to these two men, these spiritual giants, these heroes of the faith. It turned into a season of departure, and the best we can tell, they never ministered together again. I do want to give you some good news, though. I don't believe that this sharp dissension, this sharp disagreement, I don't believe that it resulted in a perpetual hostility or disrespect. I actually going to give you three verses in other parts of the New Testament that seem to indicate that the Apostle Paul's heart, we don't have anything to record what Barnabas felt about this, but the Apostle Paul's heart seems to, pardon me, have softened towards Barnabas and it definitely softened towards John Mark. So let's look at those three things and we'll be done. This is what I call relational ownership. What does that mean? It means you need to take ownership and I need to take ownership of my relations. All of my relationships, I need to have ownership of them. And what does that mean? I need to be accountable. I need to be upright. I want to be ethical. I want to be godly. As much as it depends on me, we're commanded. It says this, as much be at peace with all people everywhere, as much as it depends on you. And sometimes it does. It depends fully on you. And so I need to own that. The blame game has never borne fruit. 
There is no spiritual fruit in the life of one who has learned to blame others for everything. There's just no fruit there. And when you go through relationship issues, it's so easy. Man, we got, we got some skills in this. We got the skills to say, now let me tell you why I was right to act like I did, to say what I said, to walk away, to cut it off, to never be there again. And, and, and we, we, we can always say, they did this, they did this, they did this, they said this, they acted like this. Now, I'm not talking about issues of physical abuse or things that jeopardize your safety. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we didn't get our way and it got so inflamed that the relationship burned up over it. And so one of the things we've got to do is say, I actually have the Spirit of God indwelling me. I've got the one who was reviled but did not revile back living in me i've got the one who mastered and commanded the ability to turn the other cheek he can actually do that through me i've got the ultimate the penultimate humble one living in me i've got the gracious one living in me i've got the kind one living in me i've got the forgiving one living in me that is if we're saved now if you're not saved you do have a right to walk away because you've got nothing in you that motivates you to do something kingdom because you don't have the king in you. But I'm talking to saved people tonight that we really have less latitude just to drop people than we think we do. So let's take a look at what Paul did, and this is many years later. In Galatians, excuse me, Colossians 4.10, he writes this. After all of this took place, he writes this to the church at Colossae, and in chapter 4, verse 10... He speaks of Mark, John Mark, many years later, who is the cousin of Barnabas. He says to the church at Colossae, you've received instructions about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, Paul is writing the churches of Colossae as the apostle Paul. Many years later, he is the single most authoritative voice in the kingdom at that time. And he is telling the church at Colossae that if John Mark comes to them, see, John Mark is now back in ministry. John Mark, something shifted in his heart. He made a mistake. He quit in the middle of a missionary journey. Not a good thing to do. He made a mistake, but he learned from it. And maybe it was actually Barnabas' kindness to John Mark that brought him into repentance and back into ministry. We don't know. But at this point, Paul says, I know John Mark is traveling that area. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, I confess to you, I am not a, a robust Greek or Hebrew scholar, but that Greek word translated welcome in, uh, into the English, the ESV that I'm preaching out of, is a Greek verb that is very intense. And it could be translated like this, happily welcome him, greatly welcome him, eagerly welcome him, enthusiastically welcome John Mark. And so Paul, who renounced John Mark many years earlier, is now endorsing him. He is now being to John Mark what Barnabas wanted him to be to John Mark many years earlier. I just love the fact that somewhere along the line, God got a hold of Paul's heart and softened it towards this individual that had really disappointed him. Friends, I want to just say this. You, the, there, it is impossible to go through your life, especially if you're proactively living for Christ. It's impossible for you not to bump into other people. It's impossible for you not to be occasionally disappointed. You're going to get disappointed with all sorts of people. Disappointed with people in your family, your home, 
disappointed with people in the church. You're going to get disappointed with your leaders at times. And in those moments, it's really just a test of how much territory of your heart Jesus owns. And, and now at this point, many years later, Paul had now surrendered some acreage of his heart to the Lord that the Lord didn't have ownership of earlier in Paul's life. Now he's able to say, John Mark, hey, if he comes down there to the churches at Colossae, welcome him, he's great. So something shifted in him. In 2 Timothy 4.11, this was the last inspired letter that Paul would ever write right down to the, to the final chapters in that letter. In 2 Timothy 4 and 11, Paul is now in prison. He would never get out. They would execute him for his faith. So he's at the end of his life, and he makes a sad statement. He says, only Luke is now with me. And he says this, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I love that in his last days, Paul's heart was so free of bitterness, so free of disappointment, so free of, of hostility towards this, that out of all the people that he could have listed in his last days, he said, I'd like to see John Mark again before I die. He can really help me in this season. You, you might wonder this. Um, did John Mark go and do anything significant in the kingdom outside of what we're kind of addressing here? Well, just in case you don't know, let's go through the Gospels. The first one is Matthew. What's the second Gospel? He wrote it. Mark was one of the Gospel writers. He traveled with Peter. Peter told him the stories that Mark recorded in the Gospel of Mark. This man went on to do great things. And Paul, at the end of his life, said, bring him to me. It's an awesome thing. That's why I'm just real big. And I've, I've done this before. I haven't done it with everybody, but I just want to let you know, there have been times where I've had to nervously pick up my phone and dial a number I didn't want to dial to talk to a person that the last time I talked with them, it was not pleasant. And you have that shortness of breath and you're silently hoping maybe it'll go to voicemail and, and it doesn't go to voicemail and you hear that hello and you're like, hey, brother. <laughs> yep, it's Jeff. And it's a scary thing to do. I can tell you, the times that I've done that, I've not had one single person rail on me I've not had a single person hang up on me. I've not had a single person reject my attempt to humble myself and reach back out to them. I've had to eat humble pie. I've had to apologize when really I was hoping after I apologized, they'd apologize too, and they didn't. And it's, I mean, listen, it's a test all the way around. See, the Lord doesn't tell you to do it with a guarantee that they'll do it back to you. He just says, I want your heart free of bitterness. And this is part of the process. So Jeff, make that phone call. And um, if they had had, you know, AT&T wireless in, in Saul's day, Paul's day, he would have picked up the phone and said, Mark, brother, what's happening? Hey, can we get together? I'll meet you down at Starbucks. Let's have a, a latte and let's talk about the mistake I made uh, right at the end with uncle or your cousin Barnabas. I need to really get that off my chest. I'm so sorry. But they didn't have that. And so what he had is he had a guy that he could say, hey, if, if you're coming, Luke's here with me. Just please bring John Mark because I really see that God uses him. You've got to leave room for people that have hurt you to change. 
Man, I'm getting convicted and inspired right at the same moment. The Lord's bringing a guy to my mind right now. And it was, it was amazing. This was a year ago. The, the relationship ended about five years ago. And it was not war, but it was Cold War. It just faded out. And do I have enough time to tell this? Yeah, I got two minutes, so let me do this. I, uh, I was driving by his house. I was just driving down the road that his neighborhood's on. And I, I, I was thinking about him because every time I go in that area, I have this kind of twinge of, man, we really messed up something good. It was very similar to a Barnabas and Saul kind of thing. And as I was driving by, I, I'd rarely say this. It doesn't happen every day to me, but I heard the Lord say in my spirit, in my mind, my heart, however you want to say, he's not the same as he was back then. That's all the Lord said. He's not the same as he was back then. And I thought to myself, neither am I. Maybe we've grown up in the last five years. Maybe we've learned from that. And as soon as that happened, I felt just something released in my heart. I was very happy for this guy who, quite frankly, did me a lot of harm. And it was just such a release. And it's only been in the past week or so where I've, I've just felt like, it's probably because I'm studying this out over the last couple of weeks, I thought maybe it's time for me to pick up the phone, test the waters, Remember every good thing that we ever shared together and not focus on the way it fizzled out. I don't know. That's my story. Maybe that's not germane to what you're going through. But if it is, listen, don't quench the spirit. He never leads you into something that's not profitable for you. He will lead. It may not be easy, but it'll be profitable. So the last thing, the question is, okay, Jeff, what about Barnabas? Well, this is the only thing I can give you, and then we're going to be done. And this relational ownership we find this statement in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, let me just say this. I don't even care what he's talking about there. I'm focusing on this. Paul is writing years after the breakup with Barnabas. Years after, probably eight years after the breakup with Barnabas. And he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he's dignifying the ministry and the apostleship of Barnabas by placing him and Barnabas, though they weren't physically side by side anymore, in Paul's heart they were still together. And he's talking about the rights that come from apostleship. He's talking about the right to, um, to, to be married, to receive from the ministry. And he's saying, is it just me and Barnabas? And he puts himself, it was like there's something in his heart that was so easy to still remember the days of Paul and Barnabas together. What does that let us know? It simply lets us know this. Though the circumstances maybe could never be reversed, Paul's heart had softened. That's what this is all about, friends. When we're talking about unity in the body of Christ, the hardest part of maintaining unity is resurrecting unity. It means when unity dies, when relationships are fractured, when they're broken, sometimes the Lord will call you to be the bigger person and say, I want to bless you, but I can't bless you until you trust me enough to address this situation. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do as a believer, but I'm going to tell you, I've already mentioned it, there's never been a time where I knew the Lord was leading me to do it and I obeyed. There's never been a time, A, where it wasn't hard, it was very hard, but B, there was never a time that I did it and I obeyed him that I wasn't blessed for doing so. Something good comes from it. Jesus is a uniter. 
The enemy is a divider. Jesus has united us in Christ and our relationships. It's not enough just to not be mad anymore. The Lord often says, I don't want you to just live, live in a state of inertia and not being angry. I actually want you to grow in love. I want you to be like my son. And so I'm going to have you reach out to one that wounded you. It's exactly what Jesus did with Peter. After the resurrection, the Bible says, Jesus went and found Peter, the very one who had denied him. That's the heart of the Lord, friends. I believe in this season that God's giving some of you grace to have the courage to do this like in a season you've never had before. And so as I close, I'm just going to bless you with this prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, for those who want to but are afraid, courage. I bless them in Jesus' name, Father, with your courage. Courage to send the letter. Courage to make the phone call. Courage to drop by. I pray that there will be a, a rich blessing. The blessing of Psalm 133, verse 3. You command the blessing to find unity. Lord, I pray that they'll want the blessing so much that they're willing to risk the fear. And I ask you, Father, that when they make that call or that email or that appointment, I pray that something will be resurrected. Even if the relationship, Father, is not what it used to be, but Lord, I just pray that there will be an understanding that they have merged with you in that moment. They have sided with you, that they have dropped their defense and not stomped their foot to be entitled to their own way, but they've risked it, Lord. And as much as it's dependent on them, they've chosen to be at peace with all people. Give courage, give faith, and foster their will in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen.